We're back this morning in Acts chapter 20. We took a couple of weeks off. Uh, two weeks ago, we had a Gideon speaker here. Last week was Father's Day. So we're back this morning in Acts chapter 20. We'll just, just have to kind of refresh our memories just a little bit of what's going on. Paul here is wrapping up this third missionary journey. And it's been a long one and a productive one. He's traveled through the whole region of Galatia and Perga, strengthening the churches there. Then he went to Ephesus and he spent two years in Ephesus. And after leaving Ephesus, he goes to Troas. Remember in Troas, Eutychus falls asleep while Paul is preaching all night long. And then Paul raises him from the dead, that whole story. And then he leaves Troas and he's traveling by ship now. He's trying to get to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. And as he's traveling by ship, he stops off at this place called Miletus. Now at Miletus, he wants to see the elders of the Ephesian church one last time. But because Pentecost is approaching, he knows he doesn't have time to go all the way to Ephesus and um, spend whatever amount of time he would spend there. He would be late for Pentecost, so he sends for the elders, the appointed leaders of the Ephesian church, to come to him in Miletus and meet with him there, which they do. So they come to Miletus, Paul meets with them there, and then we have this heartbreaking goodbye, farewell speech. Lots and lots of tears because Paul and the Ephesian leaders, they both know that they will never see Paul again. And so it's a time of sadness. There's lots of weeping going on. But Paul also gives this goodbye speech, this uh, sermon, if you will. And this is rather unique in the story of Acts because this is the only instance in which we are given the words of a sermon or a speech that is delivered to Christians, to believers. And so we're spending a little bit of time on this. We broke it up into two sections. Last time we looked at the first half of this, which was basically kind of what Paul was saying there was, look at my example. Look at the example that I gave to you while I was in Ephesus for those two years. Now, the second half that we're going to look at today, Paul is going to go on to give them a charge for them uh, to, uh, to be a certain type of leader for the church there in Ephesus. And that's what we're going to look at here this morning. So with that little bit of background here, let's just read the passage. We're going to look at verses 28 through the end of the chapter, but let's look at the whole passage together in its context. And let's read beginning again from verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Paul's with me right there, and let's let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. I pray, Father, a powerful anointing on this time as we as we open our ears and our hearts and we reflect deeply upon your word, I pray. You would speak to us in profound ways, life-changing ways. I pray, Father, that you would cover me and my words with your blood, with your grace. And I pray that what is seen and heard and, and felt this morning would be your spirit. And I pray that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So even though we broke this up into two sections, this is still a lot for us to cover here um, in one message. In this second section, Paul is going to move from not so much talking about his example to now giving them this charge to this, these Ephesian elders. And everything that Paul is saying in this passage revolves around something that he says in verses 29 and verse 30. Look at verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul knows that this danger is coming. He knows that after his departure, the church there in Ephesus will be attacked, and it will be attacked in two ways. It will be attacked from without, and it will be attacked from within. Paul knows this to be the case. He's seen this already happen over and over in the story of Acts. We see this borne out in the pages of Scripture. We know that after Paul leaves here, his churches that he has planted will be attacked from two sources, from those enemies without the church and from enemies within the church. We've seen this happen in the story of Acts. We've seen as Paul was in uh, Berea, he's attacked there in Berea. The people that he has led to faith, they're attacked there. Then he goes to Iconium. They follow him there to Iconium. He then goes to Philippi, uh, to uh, Lystra. They follow him to Lystra. And so we see that same sort of pattern that when Paul comes and shares the gospel, right behind him, right on his heels, are enemies of the gospel. They're following him around, trying to sow seeds of disbelief and doubt in what Paul has taught. We see that this happens in the letter to the Galatians. As Paul talks about those who have come there, we see it in the letter to the Philippians as the church in Philippi is being attacked from enemies of the church without the, from without the church. So Paul understands how this is going to happen and how they, this church in Ephesus is going to be attacked. Furthermore, he knows that this church in Ephesus will also be attacked from a second enemy, and that is an enemy from within. False teachers will rise up within the body there in Ephesus and they will try to teach things that are contradictory to the gospel that Paul has taught. They will try to, to lead astray those who have been included into the kingdom of God by faith in Christ. They will try to lead them away through false teaching. We know that this happens, for example, if we look to the church in Corinth and how close the church there in Corinth was to being completely derailed 
by false teachers from within the body that rose up to teach the false things. And so Paul knows that this is going to happen, and he's warning them of these two enemies that are going to attack them. It's interesting when we look to the words of Jesus, we see that Jesus had the same type of warning for those uh, for those of his flock. We look in Matthew chapter 7, this is in your, in your sermon notes here, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus describes these enemies of his church as wolves in sheep's clothing. Look at verse 15 of Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So Jesus describes these enemies of the church as wolves that are described that are that are disguising themselves rather as sheep. And they will come in among them, they will come in from outside, and they will rise up from inside as well. If we were to look to Paul's letter to the Ephesians as he writes to this same church in Ephesians chapter five, we see Paul saying the same sort of thing here. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. So we see the same type of warning there. Paul is giving this speech to the Ephesian elders, warning them of the dangers of false teaching from within and enemies attacking from without. Now, what's interesting is when we think, and we ask the question, well, does this work? This warning that Paul gives to the Ephesian elders, does this work? And it appears that it worked quite well. If we were to, for example, look ahead to the letter uh, uh, to the uh, to John's Revelation, John's Revelation chapter two. Remember, in the Revelation, the beginning part of that book, there, there's these seven letters, these seven things that Jesus wants to say to the seven churches of Asia. And if you remember, one of those churches is this one, the church in Ephesus. And when Jesus speaks to that church in Ephesus, he has a, uh, a rebuke for them. But if you remember, the rebuke that Jesus has for the church in Ephesus was that that church had left its first love. But Jesus also has a commendation, a praise for the church in Ephesus. And if we look at Revelation chapter 2, we see Jesus' words of commendation to the church to whom Paul is speaking right now. Jesus says to the church, or to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So it appears that it happens just as Paul says, that they are attacked by false teachers, yet the church in Ephesus tested those false teachers and found their doctrine and their teaching to be deficient and rejected them as they should have. So the warning that Paul gives to the church in Ephesus seems to have worked. Now all of that is the background of what Paul's now going to say. Because we're now going to look at the warning that Paul's giving to them and look at what Paul says to them to do in light of these attacks that are coming and also in light of the fact that this appears to have done very well to guard the church against the dangers of wolves in sheep's clothing. So we're going to look to Paul's warning because the church, just like the church in Ephesus, the church is still being attacked from without and from within. So let's look to Paul's words. What Paul has to say to them All of it centers upon verse 28. Verse 28 is the core of this whole passage. So let's look look, look at verse 28, what Paul says here. He says to them, be careful, or I'm sorry, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. There's the central sentence that Paul says to them. Pay careful attention 
to yourselves. Pay careful attention to the flock. This is God's flock that he bought with the blood of his own son. And so therefore, pay careful attention to the flock. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Everything that Paul's going to say after that, and to a large degree, everything that Paul said before that, all of it is a fleshing out of what he says there in verse 27, or verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. And everything else that he's saying is sort of a fleshing out of that paying careful attention. It's sort of a, sort of a, uh, just, just spelling out exactly how Paul says to do that. So, let's talk for just a moment about verse 28, and then let's look at the things that Paul is going to say after that, the specific ways that Paul is going to say to pay careful attention. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock over which God has made you overseers. Now, at first glance, it seems as though Paul is telling them two things. Pay careful attention to yourself and pay careful attention to the flock. It seems like that Paul is giving them two charges there. But I think that if we think upon that, I think that what we'll see is that Paul is not telling them two different things. Paul is really telling them one thing. Paul is telling them, pay careful attention to the flock. And you pay careful attention to the flock by paying careful attention to yourself. That's how you guard the flock, by guarding yourself. I think that we'll see that's, that's really what Paul is saying. It's not two things but one. Pay, pay, or pay one thing. I'm sorry, not two things but one. Pay careful attention to yourself, to your own relationship with Christ, to your own pursuit of God. Pay careful attention to yourself. Because let's face it, there is only one person that any of us have any control over at all, and that's ourselves. No one has any control over any other person, especially spiritually. Not even those who are the most intimate people in our lives, our spouses, our children. We don't have control over any person except ourselves. Now, we have influence on other people. But the way that we most effectively influence people is through our own witness. Now, this is not to say that Paul is not going to charge them to teach the Word and, and to preach the Word to the church in Ephesus. Of course he's going to do that. We're going to get to that in a minute. But the main thing that they can do to guard the flock is to guard themselves. What the church in Ephesus needs more than anything to protect themselves against this coming danger of wolves is they need leaders who are passionate about God and passionate about their own godliness. So what Paul's saying is, guard the flock, but you're not going to guard the flock by going on a wolf hunt, trying to seek out enemies of the church without or within. You guard the flock by looking inward to yourself, by guarding your own witness by guarding your own example. Because, let's be honest with ourselves, folks. That's the person that you have the most trouble with anyway. Every spiritual failure in your life has been caused by one person. You. The devil has never made you do anything. No one else in your life has ever made you stumble spiritually. The culture around you does not make you stumble spiritually. Every spiritual failure in your life was caused by you. You are your own biggest problem spiritually. A.W. Tozer once wrote this, the, Christ, the wayward Christian that I have to pray for the most is myself. As Paul will say to Timothy later on, I'm the chief of sinners because 
Not because I sin more than anybody else, but because it is me that I know so well, and it is me that I have to watch carefully so well. So this guarding of ourself, it's, it's, this is the best way that the flock, or the flock can be protected by their leaders, is by leaders who are paying careful attention to their own walk with Christ. This is, this is not at all unlike what we said last week for Father's Day. Remember, we said for Father's Day that the spiritual leader, the husband and the father that is a spiritual leader, is the one who pursues God diligently for himself. And his own diligent pursuit of God is what stirs up his family to pursue God themselves. It is his leadership that he shows not by not by teaching them so much as is exampling, paying attention to his own example, because it is ourselves that are, is our biggest problem. It is ourselves that we need to watch the most. And by guarding our own witness, that is the best thing that we can do to help others in their faith, particularly when we talk of leaders in the church, that is the best thing that we can do to guard the faith of others and protect the flock of others is guard ourselves. Many of you are from a generation in which pastors, ministers of the gospel were kind of viewed differently than they are today. Today, ministers of the gospel are largely viewed with suspicion and for good reason. Because I'll be honest with you, we're a mixed bunch of people. Ministers of the gospel are a mixed bunch of people. There are a lot of really Christ-centered, God-loving ministers, and there are a lot of scum that, that have so many spiritual failures in their own lives that it's, it's hard for me to even imagine how they could possibly lead someone else spiritually. So we're a mixed bunch today. But if you think that the pastorate is in bad shape today, you don't really know anything. Because in the 17th century, pastors of the 17th century made pastors of today look godly by comparison. Because since the 17th century, particularly 17th century England, Pastors were a truly a sordid bunch of people. A pastor in the 17th century England was just as likely to be a drunkard as not a drunkard. They were fornicators, widely known as fornicators. They were widely known as people who were of loose morals because, believe this or not, I know this sounds really strange, but believe it or not, in 17th century England, being born again was not a requirement to be a minister. I know it's hard for me to kind of get my mind around that one too, but there it was not a requirement because a pastor, a minister of the gospel was a position that if you came from the right family, your family could buy that position or pay for you to go to the proper school to do so. It was not a spiritual thing at all. And so the pastorate in 17th century England was in terrible, terrible condition. And one man in particular saw this and was greatly troubled by the condition of the pastorate of his day. His name was Richard Baxter. He was a Puritan. And in 1653, he wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor. This book is a classic. It's still in print today, 300 years later. And this book is, the whole book is based on Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourself. You want to guard your flock? Here's how you do it. You guard your flock by paying careful attention to yourself. Now, put in your sermon notes, just one little excerpt that I think it's worth our time to read because Baxter here is spot on of what Paul is saying here in verse 28. Baxter says this, Take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine. 
and lest you lay a stumbling blocks before the blind, as may be the occasion of their ruin, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues, and be the greatest hinderers of the success of your own labors. It much hindereth our work when other men are all the week long contradicting to the poor in private that which we have been speaking to them from the word of God in public, because we cannot be at hand to expose their folly. But it would, be, it would much more hinder your work if you contradict yourselves. And if your actions give your tongue the lie, and you build up an hour or two with your mouth, and all the week after pull down with your hands, this is the way to make men think that the word of God is but an idle tale. Tell me, do people today think that the Word of God is nothing but an idle tale? Do you think that a lot of them think that because of the hypocrisy they've seen? Men who proclaim one thing with their mouth and a totally different thing with their lives. He goes on to say, One proud, surly, lordly word, one needless contention, one covetous action may cut the throat of many a word and blast the fruit of all that you have been doing. Tell me, brothers, in the fear of God, do you regard the success of your labors or do you not? Take heed to yourselves. Baxter understood what Paul was saying in verse 28. This is how you guard the flock, by guarding yourself. This is how you destroy the flock, by not guarding yourself. This is the same thing Peter said, or, or Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, keep a close watch on yourself. And on the teaching, persist in this, for so by so doing you will save both yourselves and your hearers. In other words, Timothy, you can do nothing for your people if you do not have an example for them to follow. If you do have an example for them to follow, they will follow. That's what's, what he's saying to Timothy. So our own witness, ourselves, is what Paul is saying. Now what he's going to do, after saying verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves, now he's going to tell them five pitfalls to guard against. They're guarding their own selves. They're guarding their own witness. And Paul's going to say five particular pitfalls that often trip people up spiritually. These are the pitfalls that you're to guard against. And the first one that he says is for them to guard against the pitfall of spiritual carelessness. Look at verse 31. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Be alert. Be awake. Be awake spiritually. Same thing Jesus was saying in places like Mark 13 when his disciples were, were asking, you know, tell us exactly when we'll know that you're coming back and all these things. Jesus says, that doesn't matter. What matters is stay awake. Stay alert. Do not let the master of the house come and find you sleeping. Stay spiritually alert. Stay awake. Paul warns them, guard against the pitfall of spiritual carelessness. Who do we know that has fallen into the pitfall of spiritual carelessness and that has caused them to stumble in much larger, greater ways in their lives? Who do you know that has fallen in that way? Let me suggest to you this. You can think on this and, and determine if, if I'm right or not. Let me suggest to you, everyone you know who has stumbled spiritually has done it from spiritual carelessness. Let me suggest to you that in your life, when you think of those who at one time they were, they were plugged into God, 
They were plugged into God's church. They seemed to love God and love Jesus. Now, not so much so. Let me suggest to you, all of those are that way, not because the forces of Satan decided to combine efforts and attack that person with all their might, but because that person just got careless, complacent. I know God, I know I'm saved. I, I don't think I'm tempted by these things. You know, just carelessness. Think of David. Think of King David, a man after God's own heart. And what caused David to fall? He got careless. He got spiritually complacent. He saw a woman bathing. He allowed himself to look twice. He allowed himself to stare. He allowed himself to invite her over and you know the rest of the story. Spiritual complacency caused his downfall. And let me suggest to you, everyone whom you know that has also experienced spiritual downfalls, it has come from spiritual carelessness. Thinking that you're beyond being tempted in that way. Thinking that you know God well enough and you're committed enough to God that you really don't need to focus on yourself. As Paul was saying in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourself. Our screen's not working this morning, but I had some nice pictures to show you. You don't have to imagine them in your mind. I can't. But uh, this man was, this man is, is Philippe Petit. He's not up there, but anyway. Philippe Petit. You may know that name. Philippe Petit was the world's greatest high-wire walker. Philippe Petit had an extraordinary career of high-wire walking. What made his career so extraordinary was that he was the one, as far as anybody knows, he's the only high-wire walker to never have fallen. He performed many daring high-wire walks, and to in nobody's knowledge had he ever fallen. Well, in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, plans started to be made for the construction of the World Trade Towers. They're, they're since destroyed now, but in the early 70s, those were constructed, the World Trade Towers. Well, Philippe Petit, who was a Frenchman, heard about the World Trade Towers, and he dreamed up the greatest of all high-wire walks between the World Trade Towers. Of course, the city of New York wouldn't give him permission to do that. So he concocted a scheme to do it illegally. And as the towers were near construction in or, or near completion in 1974, he and some friends posed as workers. And they infiltrated into the World Trade Towers and some of them went up to the roof of one and some to the roof of the other and they shot an arrow across the trade towers and that arrow had a line attached to it and they pulled up a wire and they secured the wire and Philippe hit it. Walked across the trade towers. Not once, not twice, but for a couple of hours. Now, of course, people on the street didn't take them long to see this. Crowds formed. People were watching. This was the most amazing thing they'd ever seen. This man was 104 stories off the ground with no cable attached to it, to the wire. Not only did he walk back and forth, he jumped. He danced. He did rolls. He lied down. Nobody had ever seen anything like this. 104 stories. Well, the police eventually made it to the roof of, of each building, and they ordered him to come down. Of course, they weren't going to go out there and get him, but they ordered him to come down. He finally comes down. They arrested him. The city of New York dropped the charges, by the way. 
But he was known as the greatest of all high... Nobody had ever done anything like that. Three weeks later, Philippe Petit ended his career when he fell from 30 feet while practicing with nobody watching. And you say, how in the world did a man who did that, how does he fall from 30 feet while nobody's watching? He got careless. Carelessness kills. And not, not the least of which areas of our life in which that is true is our spiritual area. A spiritual carelessness kills. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Spiritual complacency is the first thing he warns them about. You know the parable of the tares, the wheat and the tares? Jesus, Matthew 13, tells this parable. The enemy comes in and sows tares among the people. You remember when Jesus says the enemy does that? While the workers are asleep. Spiritual alertness is what he warns them to. Secondly, he warns them against the, the, the pitfall of shallowness, spiritual shallowness. Verse 32. And now I commend to you, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he's, he's commending them to the word of God and to the word of his grace. In other words, he's commending them to diligent, focused, scriptural study. He's commending them to grow in the Word, to grow in maturity in the Word, to grow in their understanding of the Word. This is what they must guard themselves against, this, this pitfall of shallowness in the Word, this pitfall of, of not having comprehension of God's Word, of not being, not being uh, one who can handle God's Word rightly and well. He warns them against this because maturity in the Word is one of the greatest guards that we have as we are following the command of verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourself. How can we pay attention to ourselves? Through maturity in the Word. We all know the words of the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 5. Largely that letter is all about a group of Christians who had not moved on to maturity in the Word of God. The writer says this in, in chapter 5, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the Word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We train ourselves to distinguish good from evil through maturity in the Word. Now you might say, well, okay, I don't have any problem with that. I can recognize good and I can recognize evil right away. Well, maybe so. But are there ever instances in your life in which you're not sure what to do? You could do this, or you could do that. You're not quite sure which is the most godly way. You're not quite sure which is the most loving decision to make. The Word of God tells us that discernment comes through maturity in the Word. Paul warns them against shallowness in the Word. The Word of God is their lifeline. It is, it is how they will cling to the anchor of God in the storm. As Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, but rightly handling the word of truth. So he warns them against the, the, uh, the pitfall of being shallow in the word. You know, 
I'm amazed, I think, sometimes when I realize how some Christians just imagine that spiritual maturity just sort of happens magically. That maturity in the Word just sort of, there's just some sort of magical experience that just sort of comes. I think that, that many Christians view spiritual maturity in the same way that they view physical maturity. How does physical maturity come? Automatically, by time. And I think many Christians think that spiritual maturity comes the same way, automatically, by time. Instead, Paul says to Timothy, be diligent to show yourself approved, a worker having no reason to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. Guard against spiritual shallowness. Secondly, or thirdly, he warns them of the pitfall of covetousness. Look at verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I coveted nobody's stuff. The sin of covetousness is a particularly dangerous sin for us. The Tenth Commandment, of course, prohibits covetousness. You shall not covet. And rightly so, because the sin of covetousness is one that, I, that is far more penetrating, far more dangerous than I think that we realize. Coveting, of course, we know this, the coveting is not just coveting things. It's not just coveting possessions. It's not just seeing somebody who has more than you and wish that you had what they had. But coveting extends to everything in our lives. Whether it be stuff, or whether it be a position, whether it be respect, whether it be a skill, whether it be an ability, whether it be whatever. Coveting is simply seeing something that God has not given to you and desiring it. That's coveting. And so coveting extends to all of our lives. All of us are covetous. It doesn't matter if you say, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a materialistic person at all. You're still a coveter. Because we all covet things that we don't have. Now, here's the seriousness of the sin of coveting. Coveting is a particularly serious sin because coveting directly attacks the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, and the concept of faith. Coveting is a direct frontal attack on the goodness of God. Because here's how it goes. Scriptures teach us clearly that God in his love and in his wisdom has given us every good thing. Matthew 7. Jesus teaches that you yourselves know how to good, give good gifts to your children. How much more does your heavenly Father, who knows all things, loves perfectly, sees all things, and has all power, how much more has He given you what you need? Right? The Scriptures teach that concept all over the place. So when we covet, what we are saying is, God, I think you made a mistake on this one. You have not given me this thing, whether it be a thing or a position or a status or whatever. You've not given me this, and I think that you really stumbled on that one, God, because I think that that's something that I need. So you see how it's a direct attack on God's goodness, and it's a direct denial of your faith. Faith in the God who is all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving, all-powerful, in his wisdom has chosen not to give you X, and you in your heart say, I know better than God. You see the seriousness of coveting? Paul says to them, I've not coveted anything. This is the example to follow. It goes back to his example, because that's how we, that's how we show it. It's our own example. Guard yourselves, Paul says. 
So he goes back to his own example and says, you must not be coveters. Guard yourself against the pitfall of coveting. Next, he, guard, he tells them to guard themselves against the pitfall of physical laziness. He talked earlier about spiritual laziness. Now he's going to talk about physical laziness. Verse 34. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. These hands. You can just hear Paul as he's saying, or you can see him as he's saying this, holding out these hands right here. These hands minister to my needs. I didn't ask you for a thing. I paid my own way. I worked. You know what? I worked harder than any of you. Because I had to work full time to support myself and then devote myself to the ministering of God's word after all of that. So it points to his own example. In your, in your notes here, there's a, several places that I put in here where Paul points to his own example. There's many more we can look at. But for example, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 12, we labor working with our own hands. 1 Thessalonians 2, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel of God. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, to, he, uh, Paul here exhorts others to be as he is. He says, uh, Aspire to live quietly and to work with your own hands as we instructed you. Folks, God made us to be productive people. God made us to be workers. He created us to be diligently working at something. In most stages of life, that's some sort of employment or some sort of job. But all of us reach stages in life in which that job stops and we go into retirement. That doesn't mean that we go into laziness. We're still to be workers, producing with our hands or producing with our minds, producing with our lives. God created us to be working creatures. And you know what? We just don't work right when we're not. Things just don't work when we're not. Maybe you have had the experience of uh, perhaps you're the, the breadwinner of the family. And maybe at one point you lost your job and you spent a, an extended period of time unemployed. Was that fun? People think of that. People that work, they work jobs and they think, boy, it'd be nice to just sort of be unemployed for a while. Yep, try it for a few days. And you'll find out it's empty. You'll find out it doesn't fulfill you. you find out that you go crazy because you were made to be a producing creature. And when you don't, things just don't work right. And so God created us to be in His image. He is a working, creating, producing God. Likewise, so are we to be as well. So He warns the Ephesian elders, don't get lazy. Don't get physically lazy. And look to others to supply all your needs because... That is not how you were created to be. That will destroy your example. And then lastly, he warns them against the pitfall of selfishness. Look at verse 35. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So the blessing is in the giving. The blessing is not in the receiving. We know this concept. The scriptures teach us this concept. Paul is warning them here against selfishness. Care for yourself, care for your own example, and one of the things that can destroy your own relationship with God is if you allow yourself to be drugged into a lifestyle or a way of thinking of selfishness. Guard yourself against selfishness. Selfishness and the minister of God are contradictory terms. 
How can a person be a follower of the most giving being in existence and ourselves not be giving beings as well? How can we follow God and not be a giving creature, giving person? Guard yourself against the sin of selfishness. When we are selfish creatures, when we are selfish people, we find that we not only destroy ourselves, but we destroy those around us. This is the context that Paul is saying in this thing. Your selfishness, Ephesian elders, will not only, not only destroy you, it will destroy those around you. Because you're in a community there in Ephesus. This, this family of God is a community there. And your sin will not just be isolated to you, it will spread to others. I read a story once of a, of a corn farmer in Iowa. If you've ever been to Iowa, you know that that describes the whole state. It's one huge corn farm. So in Iowa, there was this corn farmer who somehow learned of this fantastic new corn seed that was supposed to produce three times the normal yield of corn. So he bought this seed. He was all excited about this new corn seed that was going to triple his production. Well, his corn farming neighbors heard about this, and they came over and asked for some of this new seed. Will you share this new seed with us? To which he said no. He wanted to keep the seed for himself. He bought enough for him to plant his field. And he didn't want to share it with his neighbors, so he didn't. So he planted his crop that year, and the crop came up. And sure enough, true to the claim, he produced a bumper crop, bountiful crop, three times the normal yield of his fields. He was all excited about this. He began to make plans how in three more years' time he can buy his neighbor's farm, and five years' time he can do this and do this. And so the winter goes by, he plants the same seed the next year, expecting once again a crop that was three times the size of his neighbor's crops. However, what he found was that his crop was identical to his neighbor's crops. He didn't understand this at first until he realized that what happened? His corn cross-pollinated with his neighbor's corn, as corn always does. And so his bumper crop lasted for one season. Had he shared with his neighbors, then they all could have enjoyed the bountiful crop. You see, the sin of selfishness spreads to those around you. It doesn't just affect us. And so Paul warns these Ephesian elders, you cannot follow the God who said to us, it is more blessed to give than receive, and demonstrated that in the most powerful way possible. John 15, Jesus says, no greater love is this than a man lay down his life for another. Jesus could not have possibly loved us more than when he gave his life for us. And so how can we follow a God who gives so deeply of himself and not give of ourselves. Guard yourselves against these pitfalls. Folks, he's talking to the leaders of this church here. He's talking to you. He's talking to all of us. There's fundamentally nothing different about what Paul says to the Ephesian elders than what he would say to every Christian in the church. Guard your own witness.